my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello, and welcome to another great episode of our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. My name is Eric, your host. I'm here today with Eddie Lathan, who is an American multidisciplinary artist and yoga and fitness instructor. He's also the founder and teaching artist of New Dance, that's spelled N-U-D-A-N-C-E, and Gymnasium NYC, offering clothing optional fundamental movements. This is from your site here, I believe. Uh, fundamental movements and performance and presentation techniques geared towards self-confidence and embracing one's body. Additionally, Eddie is an avid traveler who's been throughout the United States and other parts of the globe. Speaking briefly a few days ago with him, I got a sense of his intellect and his passion for living. So I'm very much looking forward to today's conversation. Welcome, Eddie. Thank you. How are you? Pretty good, all things considered. <laughs> you have a great speaking voice. You just had to say that. <laughs> I was hoping I didn't sound like a squeaky clown. I don't think any of us like our voices. It takes getting used to. I used to watch music videos and know that these artists lip sync. And I'm like, how does it feel to have your voice blasting at you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're at the end of the work week. Do you have an adjective that would describe how your week's been? <laughs> an adjective. Let's see. Productive. I would even say restless. <laughs> yeah. Productive and restless. What does that entail? Well, you know, getting a lot done, but usually the restlessness I feel comes from uh, being productive, but in a lot of little small itty bitty ways, you know, it's like little small progressions of sorts. Like I don't have a typical work day. Okay. What I do is I set my clock for like, you know, anywhere between five to eight hours a day. So anything in between that time, I consider work, whether I be teaching, curriculum building, uh, running an errand, working out, any of those things that kind of entail a work day. But because it's like so broken up, like if I'm writing or whatever, I can be jumping from one assignment to another or one article to another, depending on the idea or something that intersects or I just got to write it down. So wham, bam, boom. Yeah. <laughs> In between that time, there's a lot of restlessness or, you know, pacing back and forth. Are you able to stay within that framework? Because I've heard from others who work for themselves or entrepreneurs that the gift in having your own time frame is that you have it. The downside is that, you know, we can work ourselves a little too much. Oh yeah. I've definitely experienced that briefly. So, cause I never really knew what that meant. And it wasn't until I began to kind of hone in all the multi-disciplines that make up everything that I do and build my own, I guess, foundation for what that is. Things that I've learned trial and error. That's the biggest factor because if you're not willing to kind of fail every so often and make mistakes, then you'll never really learn and uh, grow from that. So mm. it works for me now. I still have something steady that kind of takes up at least anywhere between five, to eight hours of my day, certain days of the week, not just working for myself, but like going to a coffee shop and actually working there. So that kind of adds more structure. And I must say with a pat on my back, that's recent because I haven't had a literal nine to five job in probably like four or five years. So the job that's providing the bread and butter. That's more of a supplement, in all honesty. It's, it's weird. I never would have thought that 
for me, a nine to five would be a supplement. It would be kind of like, well, this is to help me do other things. The bulk of my bread and butter comes from my yoga teaching and also my new dance, as well as some like passive income through like the content creation that I've made over the years. But that's a slow, steady build. No complaints, you know, everything in due time. With someone like myself, when I section off various things, that's going to cause a slow build because I'm not necessarily mastering one particular field. And so combining all these different things together, I've learned that that's okay for me once I stop comparing myself. Now, in saying supplement, the first thing that comes to mind is it's nourishing you. Yes, that's definitely a good definition. Yeah, it's, it's nourishing. Never would have thought that that was the case years ago, of course, you know, like before it was living, surviving even. Now it's nourishing and allowing me to thrive. I was actually having a discussion with a friend here a couple hours ago about that because we're in similar, um, not situations, I don't like that word, but similar awarenesses of where we're at now of, you know, needing things to supplement ourselves financially and emotionally, but readjusting how we think about it. So it sounds like that's what you've been doing. And again, through trial and error, <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, I didn't realize I had to do that to get to that. Even if others have told me and some of those things were like, you know, all right, whatever, girl, like, okay. And then there's other things that people tell you that won't work that you prove to be otherwise. I believe in kind of taking different uh, ingredients from different things and modalities and bringing them together to make a nice little soup that adds to the individuality while at the same time being able to relate to others. That's definitely food for thought for me. <laughs> <laughs> I love food. I love food, actually. <laughs> so if I remember correctly, you are based in New York. Yes. Brooklyn, New York, downtown Fort Greene area. Okay. Is that where you're from? Uh, no, I'm originally from uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. I love when I have to answer this question because it makes me think of where I'm really from. So I was born in Mount Vernon, New York, and moved to Cincinnati, Ohio with my mother and father and my sister when I was about three. My mother divorced, separated my father, and me and my sister went with my mother to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and that's where I was predominantly raised. And then I've been to New York City for the last 13. What are the differences between Connecticut and New York? Ooh, uh, <laughs> well, availability. Things are available and resourceful in places like Connecticut. It's, it's New England, you know, one of the far parts east of New England. It tends to replicate, <laughs> in my opinion, other metropolitan areas or inner cities that are much more well-known. Being from Bridgeport, you know, you could think one of two things. Either Park City is lush and green, or actually three things. <laughs> so the second part of that is you can think, you know, that's a place where, mm, I've passed by that on I-95. I don't know if I want to go there or not, you know. <laughs> and the third part of that is, well, it used to be a port and a hub back in um, the 1950s and 60s, if not further ahead. And so, you know, bridge port. So a lot of ships were made there, which had to be imported and or exported through the docks that were there, um, hence the name Bridgeport. But don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> so, <clears throat> but it's, it's different in its entirety that you need a car, no matter what. Um, I would even compare certain parts of the inner city or suburban areas to that of the outskirts or um, the further parts of like, you know, the, uh, the five boroughs, you know, like parts of Queens or parts of Brooklyn, parts of the Bronx, it resembles. So not that much different other than resource and availability. Coming from the West Coast, Arizona and California, I know very little about that part of the country. When I hear Connecticut, I think of, I guess, similar to when people hear Arizona and I used to hear, I didn't know there were Black people in Arizona. 
that's one of the first things that come to my mind too when someone says Arizona. Naturally, it's like an impulse. It's like, oh, they're black people. Like, you know, <laughs> like of course, there's black people everywhere in America. Right. If I'm understanding how you're comparing Bridgeport between NYC, is that comparing Phoenix or Arizona to LA? the influence of Black people or the presence of Black people is definitely stronger in LA than it is in Arizona, definitely when I moved here years ago. For me, it was like, yeah, this interesting thing of going, oh, I have been in a bubble in a roundabout way. <laughs> Coming from Bridgeport, it was like that a bit. I think my first time going to as far as Manhattan, but that's like that center, the centerpiece, at least on my own, uh, was when I was about 17, 18 either for performing or going out to the club because that's where the best clubs were because they stayed open until four or five as opposed to that, you know, tie at 12, one, two o'clock in the morning. You know, like I wanted to see what the night was. My experience with Manhattan was 17, 18, but then moving out there was a whole different story. Even though home is right next door, you're still kind of introduced to a different culture shock because now you have various ethnic groups, various cultures are intertwined. And you have neighborhoods that are considered off limits and those that you've heard rumors about, but you're not quite sure. And all you see is what you see on the media. You tend to believe it until you actually experience it. So you're a yoga and fitness instructor, but you also are a multidisciplinary artist. What exactly is that? Multidisciplinary artist and a teaching artist, because I teach so many different things, but I also perform in various ways or my um, artistic expression is through various modalities. That came to be, or that definition, because I originated as a dancer and I trained and studied with the Hip Hop Dance Conservatory from 2008 to 2013. Trained, studied, performed for about five years. And throughout those years, and even afterwards, I never considered myself an artist. Whenever I thought artist, it was always, well, you think of visual artists, such as a painter, sculptor, maybe even a musician and artistry on a higher level which is that of some of our like, you know, mainstream artists that we see nowadays, they're artists because they're at the top of their game. And so I didn't understand what it meant to be an artist because I just never considered myself that, or perhaps getting from what I was getting from the outside, whether it be through media or education, learning, it was that I wasn't worthy to be an artist. Hmm. That came from me not thinking that I was worthy to be anything more than what I was capable of doing at that moment or at that time. I think honing that in and realizing, well, okay, artists, that entails anything in which you're creating, you're innovating, you're taking from scratch or taking from some idea of some sort of inspiration, collect that and create something new, or maybe it might not be new, but it may just be an influence from something previous that people forgot. You know, as they said, there's nothing new under the sun. At the time of dancing and learning and performing, I was also on the side, again, here's a supplementing, right? <laughs> I was a early childhood education floater slash substitute teacher in New York City. And um, I was a floater. So that meant I was traveling from different centers at different centers, teaching and dealing with, you know, ages zero to five, which taught me patience, uh, a sense of, of love outside of that blood bond that we have with our family. So I was introduced to a new form of teaching, but being able to do that based on what I was learning through dance. <laughs> and I did that for seven years. After leaving that and still dancing and teaching dance, I also went to get my yoga and meditation certification and training out in India. And I think that was when I kind of had this realization that it's all entailing and multi meant is multiple. You know, I was always taught, you got to pick one thing and pick one avenue and go for it and go this way and go that way. That just never worked for me. It never worked for my brain, never worked for my soul, my essence. 
And I was like, well, you know what? I need something more concise, something that simplifies it. And I had a friend that said to me, you know, Eddie, keep it simple, stupid. And so I changed it to keep it simple, silly, because you are what you tell yourself. And I've learned to somehow condense and simplify that to make it accessible. Hence, that's where multidisciplinary artists came in. And I kind of looked it up and realized that that was a thing. Thank you for that. You said something about not seeing yourself as an artist, which is interesting because I can see that as you were talking about it, but I get it at the same time because with pop culture and media, we, or I can default to comparing myself to this person that is in the public eye, not realizing that, you know, we all are successes if we're pursuing what we're pursuing. Absolutely. It's a comparing culture because it's a competitive culture. And to some degree, you have to have that. Yet, I think once we say to ourselves, who are we competing with and for, that's when it kind of can change. Like, well, if I'm not competing with you, then who am I competing? Well, I'm competing with myself, with who I was the day before. That kind of allows me to then own my artistry and say, well, no one's going to tell me what I am because I'm going to tell myself who I am. It's really about knowing what you offer um, and what you create and owning the value of that. To kind of circle back to yoga, um, can you tell us about your company's new dance and gymnasium NYC? This is interesting because this will be my first speaking about this on a bigger scale because I started doing new dance, which pretty much is a um, fusion of nude and dance. <laughs> so dancing nude, dancing naked. You know, when I started this back in 2015, I co-founded it with a dear friend of mine at the time who was a naturist, considered herself a naturist slash nudist. And we met on a beach and I had never been naked in public setting before. This wasn't my thing. I knew people over the years who had tried it out or who were into that lifestyle, but I found it to be kind of jarring at the time. I was just like, who wants to be in these environments naked? Like, what's the point? Oh, it must, you know, end up in big orgies. And it was the complete opposite. That also came to do with, from a cultural level, as a black man, you know, there's just certain things that you just don't do, you know? And when you grow up in a Christian household or grow up in a more conservative household with certain values in terms of how you present yourself, bearing the skin, that's blasphemy almost. Why would you? And that also came from the fact that I didn't even like my body. I didn't like myself. I'm not thick enough. I'm not heavy enough. I ain't got the big lips. You know, I ain't got the watermelon moody. I ain't got the big hips. Or rather, I don't have the big enough muscles. I'm not a linebacker. I'm not a basketball player. I ain't six feet one. We've known my father six foot three, bless his heart. You find yourself trying to navigate, well, what am I? Who am I? And what does me being nude in public have anything to do with like being who I am? So anyway, make a long story longer or rather short, I meet this guy who coincidentally enough happened to be from Ukraine and he had been living here for a number of years uh, studying and he was a scientist and researcher, but he had this avid love for doing nude things or being naked in public, but doing things actively. So that could be hiking, that could be swimming, that could be working out, that could be just having a group discussion, doing yoga, which is how I was introduced to yoga and nude yoga was through that element. Me on the beach and I had never been naked. Give me about an hour or so and I finally dropped trial. Saw old, old dudes, you know, the women with their breasts down and just talking and living life and paying no concern as to who was looking, who was there and what was below your neck for the most part, or at least in terms from a sexual standpoint. That began like this whole wild, interesting, beautiful journey of me identifying as a naturist nudist not living the life, so like having to be naked all the time, but just, it served a purpose. I'm on the beach, I'm dancing. This man, his name was Kirill, or Kirill rather. He realizes I'm a dancer. And so, you know, playing music, I'm dancing around and he liked my style. 
And at some point he wanted to kind of take photos and videos. And I was like, all right, um, what you gonna do with that? Like, <laughs> what's the purpose of this? Like, I don't, that stuff you get paid to do, honey. Like, no, but I ended up doing it like by the shore. He was taking videos and pictures and I'm being silly because I'm uncomfortable as hell. Okay, first of all, you got me being naked in public. Secondly, I'm dancing, you know, in a public form and not being on stage. You know, despite me being a performer, I'm very shy and introverted when it comes to my dance. I'm not the kind of guy that just gets the party started like, let's go, let's get it up. Even if I am a trained dancer, it's just not something that I like to do. I don't like showing off. And it felt like I was showing off a bit, you know, people making comments, you know, uh, mostly positive, but mainly just about my body. Like, you know, how I looked, you know, complimenting me and me looking at myself like, what? Just finding any way in which to kind of deflect the comments or the compliments. And suddenly he asked me, hey, you should teach a naked dance class. And I looked at him and was like, that's the most stupidest, ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. My foundation is hip hop dance, street style dances, you know, everything from house to Vogue, to crump, you know, the social dances of our time. And was like, how would that look being naked? I said, hell no. At first we were kind of like seeing each other and like, you know, um, dating, but we became friends as really good friends through the fact that I eventually six months later decided to do it. I thought long and hard. I was like, no one's doing this. I feel uncomfortable doing it and I'm good at teaching. Okay, why not? Let's do it. He agreed to film the promos and everything, keep it raw. And I agreed to dance and teach at a spot in Midtown. At heart, he was very passionate about it. And he was passionate about it because he also wanted to learn to dance. And so that branches off into gymnasium, which gymnasium at the time was his brainchild, which he created at Burning Man back in 2015. He was known at the time as the active naturist. And he created gymnasium as a way in which to get men predominantly gay men to get together and have activities that was based on like that Greek model of philosophy, sportsmanship, athleticism, and male bonding. And gymnasium pretty much entailed doing all of these things naked. I mean, that's the old Greek way. That's how they did it. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2018, tragically. It was then that active naturism or active naturists and gymnasium kind of just halted up until that point. I taught overseas, you know, I was invited to do that because of what I was doing, teaching at, you know, naked retreats around the U.S. This is all dance. All dance. Through doing this, I taught others or was teaching others to like their bodies and love their bodies more just through dance and being naked because that's what I got from it. My mind was being opened up into like a deeper function. New dance became more than just like a dance class on a Friday and it became something that was an umbrella to other types of classes that we could do nude. So many nuggets there. One of the ones that stood out is that it reinforces what I heard some time ago that the largest sexual organ is the brain. At least coming from my opinion, an American standpoint, we equate nudity or sexuality so much with the body that we forget that it's so much more than, you know, when we're in the bedroom. And it kind of tied into a couple of experiences I had. One, going to a clothing optional hotel. I found that last minute with a friend in Palm Springs years ago and going, you have lost your damn mind. <laughs> but it was very liberating. I'll say that. Like you were sharing, it took me a minute to say, but once I saw everyone else and then within five minutes, it's like, there's nothing sexual about this. Mm-hmm. And then taking a life drawing class with a former coworker. And both of us going in going, oh my God, how am I going to do this? Watching some naked person sit in front of me. What I found from that experience of doing the drawing is that everybody has something beautiful about their bodies. Mm. 
outside of what we're trained to look at, uh, how to look at the body. Yeah, absolutely. I often say in my classes, I said, you know, this usually helps to open up the idea of owning your body. You know, the part about yourself that, at least on a physical level, the part about yourself that you don't like the most is usually the part of yourself that someone else likes the best. And once you realize that, it's like, oh, like you kind of switch it up. It's definitely a factor in perceiving how we look at ourselves, you know, or even the fact that it took me to be naked for me to learn how to truly be myself. Mm. It took me to be naked for me to learn how to be better with clothes on. Ooh, that's deep. So taking my clothes off and just revealing that and being vulnerable, it was like, well, this should be a piece of cake with clothes on. Um, I could be a more authentic character. How we approach it from this very puritanical standpoint here in America anyway, it's like, own your body, but not like that. You could show the whole breast, every single part of the breast. Just don't show that areola. <laughs> when Janet Jackson, you know, uh, when that boo popped out, the way that everyone acted over an areola, it's amazing. But yeah, so traveling and immersing myself in other places in which there's a bit of an, a cultural exchange of some sort, being in bathhouses overseas, you know, where it was co-ed, talking, kicking the shit, like literally just like, ain't nobody tripping out and bugging. And what you do with New Dance and as an instructor, what's your take on how men we feel about our bodies, generally speaking? I feel like it's the oddest kind of juxtaposed idea, especially when it comes to masculinity and machoism. It's like we literally spend our lives aiming to be better than and or impress other men, which that in and of itself makes it kind of homoerotic. And I wish I could like dive into that more, but it's like my take on that is we're always looking for ways in which to make ourselves better than someone else who we think is better than us or has what we don't. And we never focus on what we have to build from there. And you would be surprised at the men who have the most issues with their self-esteem. Usually the guys who are quite attractive, present themselves to the world as such, and yet on the inside lack something that hasn't been cultivated, you know, that hasn't been given a hug. You know, and going back to the inherently sexual part, it's like the moment we see another man that's naked of the parts in which we're told shouldn't be looked at, that's when all of a sudden comparisons come in. The glutes, you think of the groin, you think of those areas, the phallus, even the chest, because that's usually covered too parts of ourselves that we cover, we tend to always try to find ways in which to enhance it, to make it better than what we think it already is. Once you get inside of a room with no clothes on, you ain't got nobody there but yourself. You can't put your hands in your pockets. You know, you can fold your arms all you want to, but that's just going to express how you're really feeling anyway. Or when there's nowhere to go, nowhere in which to hide, you're forced to see yourself. And I always say, own what you have first. If you don't like something about yourself, that's fine, but own it first. Once you own it, then you're able to do something about it. And you can work from there. Our clothes are nothing more than just a costume for what we have, what we don't have. You know, of course, me being a gay man, I may perceive things possibly differently, but I'm still a man. But I heard comparison on what you were sharing. Say a straight identified man may want to look a certain way to possess or attract women. Let's just say, for example, there's a woman that, let's just say, attractive to his standards, but she has somebody who he thinks perhaps pursuing her in the same way. They're both trying to get the upper hand with each other while failing to see what it is that well, this female, what it is that she wants. Now, naturally, you know, like in the bird world, the animal kingdom where, you know, they do these feats 
there's a group of like birds, I believe that, um, I forget what they're called, but they all do a dance and they take turns doing the dance in front of the female bird. The one that she picks is the one who does the quote unquote, the best dance. And she's looking for something in particular with what they're offering. They're competing with each other, but the focus is on her. You talked about like working a lot with gay men, but how do you identify on the LGBTQ plus spectrum? I identify as queer. I feel like queer is something that we've kind of taken back. I think that queer enables much more than just your sexuality or what you're attracted to on a sexual level. That can involve anything from binary to, you know, being like an artist or being an activist. You know, being queer means also being kind of radical, being different not necessarily identifying with one, but somehow interweaving between all of those. I've lived life predominantly as a gay man. As of now, I guess somehow I've transitioned and you know, I have bisexual tendencies or bisexual feelings, meaning like having an attraction to the opposite gender. Tying it back to when you talked about the birds and the mating dance and how, at least in Western society, men are kind of trying to attract individuals. It seems like you're drawn maybe more to energy Absolutely. Or you're more intuitive about that. Yeah, yeah. I think that the older I get, the more I realize that energy and the intuition comes from being able to connect with someone outside of the aesthetic. We're a society that we often fetishize things. So sometimes what we think we're attracted to is nothing more than a fetish that we've kind of attached to based on trauma, based on not having something and now you can have it, based on the chase and now finally having it. For myself, I've predominantly dated men who were other. Other meaning like, you know, they were either older, they were of another ethnicity or culture or background, and often different body types. As I've learned more about myself on a deeper level, I've been in front of a person where I wouldn't even think or look twice at that person on an aesthetic level. After a conversation, after getting to know the person and seeing their quirks or seeing their vulnerabilities, man, they're the sexiest motherfucker I've ever seen in my life. And I think that's just a matter of, again, energy and comfort and vulnerability and being able to connect. And if I can make someone feel comfortable, that allows them to feel comfortable enough to then express who they are. And then I end up being attracted to that person even more because it's, you know, it's kind of like this back and forth. You know, growing up Pentecostal, at least on my mother's side, and I remember the preacher, Bishop Wiggins, what is his name? Is his name. He would always come up to me. I'd be to my uncles and cousins. He'd be like, hey, preacher, man. I'd look at him like, you know, with the raised eyebrow, like, well, nah, I ain't gonna be no preacher. Like, I ain't with that, you know, like, whatever. Like, just kind of like, you know, brushing it off and, you know, giggling, taking it as a compliment for what it is. And he said this for years. I never quite understood it. And then past few years, it hit me that, well, I may not preach the traditional religious word per se, but I definitely like to teach I like to exchange. And the more I teach, the more I learn. And I've learned to own that. Because if you don't own yourself, someone else is going to tell you who you are. Which, by the way, let me add this before I forget. Me doing all these things and owning all these different talent skills and the fact of doing nude artistic expression, me as a Black man in this day and age, I'm owning my body and how I want to own my body. Because there was a point in time where we didn't own our bodies, naked or otherwise. I feel good about that. That prompted, using that word, prompted a question for me with, you know, accepting and embracing your body. Because when you were talking about the first time you would suggest that you do that on the beach, I'll be honest, my first thought for me would be like, because I'm Black, and if I'm one of the only ones, I'm not a museum piece. 
I'm not on display here. <laughs> like, was that a concern for you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, it sure was. Like, it was like a fleeting thought. It has dawned on me a lot of the times. Yeah. Like, that definitely was a concern. But of course, the energy and the intuition that I got from that, that was far from the course. That wasn't the case. But knowing any situation I get into, even with some of my partners, actually, one of them being an actor and an artist, I see now that he was amping me up. You know, he was celebrating me in a way that I couldn't. He would often tell friends, like, you know, he does new dance. Um, and of course, granted, this was European, so it was much different. Yeah. But then he finally realized that after me explaining the Black experience, he understood it. Thank you for that. <laughs> so I discovered you through, was it Spencer Jones, his December 2021 article in Travel Noir. You were the feature of that talking about travel as a queer man, which, yeah, I really enjoyed that. But when did your journey of travel or learning your love of travel begin? <laughs> I would say it began when my father first took me and my sister, because my father had moved from Ohio to California after him and my mother separated. From the age of six to eight, I didn't see him. And then at eight, he was already out West, you know, had like, you know, family and all of that. And I remember... He would come from California because he would drive a trailer. This bad boy was equipped. You know, in the back of the, the truck, he had like two bump beds. You know, he got some space, got some cabinets. You know, as a kid, this place is huge. So it was like beautiful. And he had been doing that for a number of years, making deliveries of different kinds throughout the United States, all over the United States, just driving around, you know. And mind you, we're talking about, you know, high yellow black man, dreadlocks, which I prefer to call locks, made of color, driving around in a tractor trailer, which was different. You think of the, you know, the country boys, like Midwest beef. I wasn't used to seeing black men do that, at least not cross country. You know, my father had always been adamant about travel and about people of color getting out. He would put that in my brain constantly, which now, bless his heart, he's over in Ghana, Africa, which is where he's retired at. But it was at that point of eight years old, driving from Connecticut all the way out to California. We would go from the South all the way to like, you know, parts of the Midwest. He would stop, make deliveries, be there for a few hours, visit truck stops. It was with him that I saw my first tornado. I saw the white sands of New Mexico and Arizona. I saw the rain clouds off in the distance, you know, about 30 miles down. But meanwhile, we driving in sunshine with like, you know, the sun out. But you can see off in the distance, the thunder and the clouds and everything. Seeing various types of people for the first time outside of Connecticut. Being out in California, San Diego, going to a beach, a real beach for the first time with the waves, seeing this. Meanwhile, I had friends and family that was going to Bush Gardens at Walt Disney, which they spent the whole year preparing for those two weeks to go. And meanwhile, here I am for two months, two and a half months, driving with my father in the truck out to California, then staying there for about a month, month and a half, and then we'll drive back from California all the way back to Connecticut so we can get ready for school. Uh, I would say that was over the course of four years. So that was a spark. But I'd always been an adventurous and curious child. And then from there, as I got older, I took a cruise down to the Caribbean with a partner of mine at the time, boyfriend, and his family. And that was to Jamaica, Cayman Islands, and Mexico. But that was a vacation, so that was different. It wouldn't be to 2014, 2015, I was about 25, 26 maybe, where I got the opportunity to actually go to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, to teach. And that was the spark that kind of was like, oh, wow, this is what I need. So, you know, traveling around the United States, you know, 30 different states over the course of a lifetime, you know, that was one thing. But to leave the United States and to leave the United States and go to a place to teach my craft, 
not only teach my craft, but teach it to people who are like me, who are black like me and learn a different culture, hearing things from people like, oh, well, be careful of this, be careful of that. And everything that they talked about, boo, that's what anywhere. I can go up the street and say the same thing from where I live. It was more dangerous to walk up the street in my hood than it was for me to go to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, because at least I was with people I knew who were part of the culture and who also said, well, don't do this or do that. This, you know, dissipated any type of myth about anything that was there, including voodoo which is not some witchcraft brewery that they like to make it to seem like that's actual religion. It's actual reverence, you know, that comes from the African religions and the African ideologies. That was 2014 was when I went to Haiti, Black History Month or Black Excellence Month. And then from there on, that's when the traveling continued throughout the United States for different functions, various things like Burning Man. Burning Man was like a highlight for me because I taught new dance there and doing things like most black people wouldn't be doing and seeing other black people who were there and being like, we here brother, or we here sister. Like that was a beautiful thing. I am very pro-black and very pro-color lifting up people and understanding in order for us to get past the things that we're going through. Now we have to understand each other. We may not agree all the time, but at least if we understand, we won't have as much judgment. When you talked about Haiti and how that sparked your love of international travel as someone who's an avid traveler from the U S a black man, This has been a question of mine, not always, but I've given myself permission most recently because I was in Mexico. I think when I reached out to you, how can I phrase this? In noticing that not a lot of Black Americans travel internationally outside of, say, the Caribbean, what have you learned or what's your take on that? In the places that I've been and that I've traveled to, the one thing that holds the most consistent is I noticed the difference between being tolerated and being celebrated or the idea of my color not being such an identifier to who I am as a person. The first time hearing someone call me an American, not a black American or an African-American. First time I actually used African-American, they said, oh, what part of Africa are your parents from? And then I realized like, wait a minute, African. Oh, holy crap. I'm far removed from Africa. Very much so, we are. And then it said, oh, I'm just an American because America is a culture. It doesn't matter if you're Asian, if you're white, if you're Latino. And so hearing that for the first time and not having to use any other identifier, qualifier, adjective to follow up as a prefix to American, it was different. It was really different. And that's when you learn most about yourself is when you travel to places that you are completely far removed from and learning to find those relatable things, learning to find those commonalities in which you can then build off of, learning to find the things that you like about another person or other people that they benefit from and that you benefit from. I keep going back to this word, but cultural exchange. I feel like as an American, again, by our qualifiers, as a Black American, that travel is the best thing that you can get when it comes to any education outside of tourism. I've been lucky and blessed and grateful not to be in any place that I've traveled to where I was just merely a tourist. It was for work, it was for connection, visiting, but as well as uh, just learning. I don't fall into tourist traps. Like I'm told beforehand what to expect, how to avoid those. And usually having the inside through someone who's from there gives a great advantage to how you can navigate that and learn more about the people. Your story about your travel experiences, for me, I relate to because I truly, honestly can say I didn't think I was American or feel that until I left the U.S. because of our history with this determination to categorize based on race, which we know is a social construct more than anything. 
But yeah, I, I definitely relate to that. Looking at myself in the mirror, I say, oh, I'm American. Yeah. I thank my aunt for this, who helped me when I was younger, because she's a librarian, about looking up history. I am so annoyed, I'll say this, and I know it's not intentional, it's just how we are in this country. If we say somebody's from Africa, we just leave it there, they're African. If somebody asks me about the guy who's sitting next to me, oh, he's European, their next question would be, well, from which country? But we don't do that with people from Africa. We just say, oh, he's African. It's like, that's a huge continent with, I think, more than 50 countries. And funny you say that because the two countries that I feel that get excluded from that when people describe someone being from Africa is Morocco and Egypt. Those are the two countries that are still in Africa, yet when they describe themselves, they don't say African, they say Moroccan or they say Egyptian. And when we refer to Africa, we tend to separate Egypt and Morocco. Oh, he's from Morocco. He's from Egypt. Yeah, thank you for that. That's a good point. You know, not just Africa, but what part of Africa? Because different parts of Africa have so many different vibes and so many different types of uh, flows. Or even looks, because we associate Black with a look. And, you know, when we think of Italians, we think of a look. We think of Swedes, we think of a look. We think of English. And I'll just share this quickly. Years ago, a friend suggested I watch. It was his first season, or I think maybe the only season. It was called Africa's Next Top Model. And what I saw in that was that this woman from this country and this woman from this country, they all had a unique look specific to that country that we don't notice just because of lack of education. Actually, how I got to Sweden was through a woman who part of her family was from Uganda, but she grew up in Sweden. And I remember she said, when I told her I was watching it, she's like, we don't look alike, most likely, but we have similarities. If you notice the contestant, and she was absolutely right. Wow. But you mentioned that you traveled outside of the U.S. and you worked, but have you lived in countries other than the U.S.? So that's another thing that I have the advantage of, I feel, and privilege is that whenever I've traveled, it's never been anything, especially outside of the United States, I kid you not, it's never been anything less than six weeks. I guess I can say, and doing that probably over the course of three to four years, yeah, I can say I've lived in another country for a period of time. That would be Amsterdam, Netherlands. Yeah, Amsterdam, Netherlands was like a second home for me. from Like 2017 to like, I would say up until last year, even when I visited back in October till about December. Amsterdam, Netherlands would be the closest that I came to living outside the country and perhaps even Bali, Indonesia. Now, we've touched on, you know, traveling as a Black person, but how have your experiences been traveling as a queer man? Is that something that is at the forefront of your consciousness? <laughs> it's kind of secondary, yeah. It's, it's never dawned on me that also as a queer man, traveling, you know, when I went to places, I may have sought out the queer spots, the LGBT spots, just to get a feel for it and get a vibe and see what it was like, but never really being fully immersed. And I think the only time that that became prevalent was teaching in Berlin. Because teaching there, I was teaching workshops and at a workshop that was specifically catered towards GBTQI men. Mm-hmm. And that, I would say, would be the closest of identifying with being queer and traveling, seeing a different culture of queers. Yeah except in places in which knowing that I can't do certain things like public displays of defection. It's a little different in certain places like India, for example, the men are always around each other because, you know, not around women. But I think that acceptance of male camaraderie and bonding is much less of a threat to one's heterosexuality than that would be here in America. Um, Whereas elsewhere, that wasn't the case. 
but also knowing that there was a line that could not be crossed, especially in public domain. Or an energy that may be picked up on. Exactly. So when did you discover that traveling could be a way of life for you or could nurture you? It just dawned on me. (laughs) Organic. There were different factors involved with those. It was something that really came into light recently because of being able to sustain yourself while doing it. They always say when you're young, just travel, don't worry about the money, you'll find a way, you're resourceful, which is dead true. However, you get to a certain point in a certain age where you're just like, all right, this shit ain't cool no more. I need to sustain myself. You know, I can't be relying on like hostels and this person's kindness and the food pantry here. I think that it being a lifestyle can only come with as much as what you're willing to work to get there. Mm. If you work remotely or you have a job where you can freelance, it really comes down to resources and connection, networking. They often used to say it's not what you know, it's who you know. And now it's both. It's what you know and who you know. But to kind of wind down, I read your November 2021 article on medium.com. It was titled uh, Imperfection, the New Perfection. I like that you write that, and you kind of touched on this earlier when we were talking about imperfection, but I'll just quote this, that you said that being less presentable on occasion helps carry me forward. Can you explain? Yes. For me, I'm also ADHD. And so my mind can be worried about so many little details that are so unnecessary when it comes to presenting myself, whether that be on social media and whatnot. And I'm not obsessed with social media outside of the fact that I know that it can be a tool that I'm just now understanding how to utilize it for my own benefit, as opposed to just posting pictures of what I ate. I'm realizing like this could actually influence and teach others. Even if like, you know, my glasses were tilted and my hair wasn't the best. In that particular moment, every little thing has to be a certain way because I get into the habit of comparing what others were doing. I'm like, how can I get what she did? Or or I like what he did. And it's like, no, 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 no. What do I have to offer? And what is it that I'm offering? Well, I'm offering vulnerability. I'm offering people to see that imperfection, even as an artist. I've heard so many things where people think based on what I do for work or my travels and what I've posted, that I live this phenomenal, grand, privileged life. And I do, but it's not something that is because I present it as that. Presenting myself as less presentable or in a less presentable way than what someone else might think should be allows me to really fully be myself. From my personal experience with artists is letting it be what it is. Yeah. So that we can find the beauty in it. It's like put a few things, throw it out there, wham, bam, boom, you're done. Well, thank you for that, for the article and for sharing that, because to be professional is one thing, to be perfect is another. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for taking time to read it and to like, you know, express that. I really am glad that we connected. And I actually discovered your article maybe a few months back, but, you know, and me doing this platform, I'm still learning that when it feels organic and right from me internally, it's okay to reach out to individuals who I feel are making a difference. So thank you. I'll say this in terms of like divine, how can I say it? Divine, divine synchronicity. Let's just say that. I think earlier that day, before I saw your message, you know, I often go into like these little moments of like fantasy, <laughs> you know, like, you know, how something would feel if this was to happen or like if I was to end up on this stage or end up in this, you know, um, predicament, you know, and that particular day I was thinking, what would it be like if I was to be interviewed for something? And then to see your message, it was kind of like this, again, divine synchronicity, like, okay, I'm doing something right. Someone's seeing what I'm doing and perhaps it could very well benefit and be inspirational to others, especially to young black queer men. Allowing your channels to be open, that's, I think, seems like you were allowing yourself to do, honoring where we're supposed to go. Absolutely, yeah.
I want to make sure that people know more about you. Where can we find you online? Oh, uh, <laughs> my Instagram, my IG handle is at Gray Poupon, G-R-E-Y underscore P-O-U-P-O-N 87. Okay. And you can find me on Medium, medium.com under Eddie D. Lathan, the fourth. That's E-D-D-Y-D, middle initial, Lathan, L-A-T-H-A-N as a Nancy, and then Roman numeral four. And if you're interested, and this is just a, um, a note, it's N-S-F-W, so not safe for work. But if you want to check out my website, newdance.nyc, that's N-U-D-A-N-C-E dot N-Y-C. There you can find some of my works in terms of my new naked artistry uh, happenings and things that's going on there. And that hopefully will open up a channel to others to understand what naturism, nudism is about outside of the typical sexual kind of innuendos and whatnot that go into that. You know, getting those things out there and letting those stigmas and stereotypes come down allow us to kind of thrive. And especially as queer men or gay men, we're dealing with so many barriers that learning how to love yourself is one of the steps. So, um, yeah. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.